Our scripture text for today is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. It's on page 981 in the Black Pew Bibles. Will you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Why don't you pray with me um, as we look at something um, from Paul's letter to the Philippians plopped right there in the middle of of this book, something that just seems seemingly innocuous, right? It looks like just mere travel plans between the Apostle Paul and two of his friends. But Paul isn't just doing this just merely to just let people know what's just going on Him, This guy's traveling here and this, this person's coming here. They're just doing these random things, but Paul always is driving with a purpose, and we're going to see that today. So pray with me as I pray for you that we would hear from God this morning on what it looks like to live in a Christ-like manner, becoming examples for those as we follow Jesus. Won't you pray with me? God, you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of all honor. You are worthy of all worship. Giving everything that we have to you is a worthy sacrifice of praise. Today, on this Father's Day, through this coming week, the rest of this month, for this year until the day that we die, or Christ, you come riding on the clouds, my prayer for us as a congregation is that you would draw us close to you. I pray that you would make everything that entices us away from Jesus lose focus. Would you make us see Jesus more clear and more fresh than anything else this world has to offer? Draw us to set our gaze upon Jesus and run the race of faith with stubborn concentration upon the prize, our Savior, Jesus. He is the supreme example for all Christians. And as we run this race, fueled by the Spirit, with stubborn concentration on Jesus, would you aid us to become examples of Christ-likeness to those around us? 
Spirit conform us, mold us to reflect Christ in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Holy Spirit, help me to proclaim the words of Jesus from Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Would today be a demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God, not because anything that I have brought, but because God showed up and empowered the preaching of His words. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. There was a famous commercial that um, came about um, in the year 1984 that was a, a commercial that Apple put out is when they were introducing a new computer and it was something that they used to try to advance the idea of something revolutionary, something new, something great is on the stage. And that idea, um, they are moving, using movie scenes from a movie called 1984, which is actually a movie based upon a novel by George Orwell written in 1949. And if you've seen any bits of that movie or have read the book, it was George Orwell writing a novel in 1949, looking to the future and what he develops and what he builds inside this world of his novel is something they called a dystopian future. It's not a utopia. It's not a place where everything's great and everything's grand, everything's good, but it's a dystopian future. Everything's awful. It's just war all the time. The government's oppressive and these sorts of things. The government is omnipresent. They're always watching you. And if you've ever heard this phrase, the the idea of big brother, big brother is watching you, this constant gaze. You're always under surveillance. So the government knows everything they're doing. They're constantly looking to you. They're constantly looking after you. They're constantly following up on you. That idea, big brother idea, comes from this book, 1984. And what we are meant to do is read that book and, and come away with this, this sense and this idea that Orwell was giving us, like, you know, this is not really the place where we want to, want to end up. This idea of constant surveillance, constantly being watched by Big Brother. But yet when we turn our attention to Philippians 2, 19 through 30, this idea of watching people, looking to their example, constantly casting our gaze onto someone else, seeing how they act, seeing how they think, seeing what they do, and then imitating what is going on in their lives, Paul doesn't present that idea as an idea that is to be frowned upon Paul presents the idea as something that is worthy to do. He promotes this idea of watching and studying fellow believers, fellow Christians, as a good and worthy thing for believers to do. See, when you get to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, this feels like an odd portion of Scripture, right? It's seemingly out of place. I mean, like, where did this report come from? Like, I mean, this is stuff in Paul's letters that usually lands at the very end. Maybe sometimes very shortly at the beginning, but here it is, an, an extended like travel log, the travel plans of two gospel co-workers with Paul just plopped right into the middle of, of a letter. It seems out of place. It, this portion of Scripture is seemingly anti-theological. We just came off the hills of the great Christ hymn. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we just came off the hills of these, these great exhortations of teaching and truth from Paul on what does it look like to grow and be conformed more and more to Jesus. Then all of a sudden, it's like we swing on a hinge, and the next thing you know, Paul's just talking about, hey, I've got some friends, they're coming to you, I'm here, they're traveling there, and it's like, man, what, what, what is that? It's seemingly out of place, it just feels routine. I was talking with a good friend Friday morning, and as we were talking about this portion of Scripture, he says it, 
it feels like he's reading a denominational workers' email exchange. Okay, I'm coming here. Yeah, can you send this? Well, put this on your calendar. Make sure it's loaded up your iPhone, and I'm going to teach, and you're going there. And it's just like this seemingly innocuous exchange of just information amongst, amongst workers. But yet, Paul is teaching the Philippians something about all that he has just said through this portion of Scripture and everything that's gone before. Because it is that. Paul is using this as an opportunity, as a way to exhort the Philippian believers that, yes, there are some co-workers, some co-laborers of the gospel who are with me that they are going to be coming back to you. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, never satisfied with leaving things where they are, uses this specific thing as an opportunity to yet again grab the examples of Timothy and grab the examples of Epaphroditus and set them before the people. And in essence, what we're going to see this morning is this, that as heavenly citizens conduct their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, they in turn become Christ-like examples for others to imitate. What we're going to see this morning is that our section of Scripture just splits right in half. Because what Paul is going to do is say, listen, everything that I've said, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 18, there are two people that are living this out. There are two people that you guys know in Philippi who are firing on all cylinders when you want to see in flesh and bone what it looks like to conduct your lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Yes, we are to look to Christ. Yes, we are to cast our gaze to Jesus, but you can also look to your left and see Timothy because he is doing the very thing I am encouraging you to do. And you can look to your right and see Epaphroditus and he is doing the very thing that I'm encouraging you to do. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see Timothy. Timothy is being pushed forward in front of the Philippians as a Christ-like example. That's verses 19 through 24. Then the second half of our text selection this morning is going to be verses 25 through 30, and we're going to see that Epaphroditus, he's a Christ-like example. He images Jesus. He eats, sleeps, breathes Jesus. And Paul's pressing Epaphroditus and Timothy before them, and what we're going to see is two very distinct categories come from these two people. So when Paul presses Timothy before the Philippian believers, he's going to say there's something just very earthy, there's just something very well, there's a reason why I'm sending Timothy back to you. This isn't willy-nilly. This isn't spur of the moment. There's just something very earthy, very concrete. He's just doing denominational email exchange. Like, hey, I'm sending Timothy to you, and this is why I'm going to do it. But in that, through that vehicle of denominational email exchange, what he's doing is then saying, as I'm sending Timothy to you, Paul takes that opportunity to say, but look at all the ways that Timothy is worthy of imitation. He is following Jesus. And then when Paul turns his gaze to Epaphroditus, he does the exact same thing. He says, this is the reason why I'm sending Epaphroditus to you. Paul is in Rome, in prison, Epaphroditus is part of the Philippian congregation. He was sent from Philippi to bring gifts of money and encouragement from Philippi to Rome. And now Paul's saying, hey guys, I'm sending them right back to you. 
Epaphroditus is going to be the one who's actually carrying the letter that we're reading now. Epaphroditus takes this letter from Rome to Philippi and is to read it. This is the reason why I'm sending it back to you, but don't be mistaken. This isn't just some scrub who's just doing menial footwork, but this is a man who is, as the scriptures say in verse 29, he is worthy of honor because of the way he exemplifies Jesus. Heavenly citizens conduct their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, and as they do so, they in turn become Christ-like examples for others to imitate. Timothy and Epaphroditus are set before the Philippians and in turn set before us as these two Christ-like examples. So let's look first at Timothy, verses 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have nobody like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy and Epaphroditus were two men known by the Philippian believers. Epaphroditus was a part of the Philippian congregation. Timothy was known by the congregation as Paul's right-hand man. See, Paul is in prison. And for this reason, he's going to send two men to the Philippians. And in each case, Paul defends his reason for sending the particular person and couches this reason in the concrete, earthy realm. So what we see in verses 19, verses 23 and 24 is this. This is Timothy's reason for coming. And Paul says, for one thing, I am sending Timothy to you for my sake. Because, see, when we read the idea of what's going on with Timothy, when we read the idea of what's going on with Epaphroditus, they're chronologically out of order. So if you just wanted to read chronologically what would happen next, you would first read Epaphroditus. We're going to see that Paul's going to say, it's necessary now. I need to send Epaphroditus to you now. And the letter that we have before us that we have been studying is going to be in Epaphroditus' hand. He's going to take it back to the Philippians. And Paul's hope is this, that when the Philippians get this letter, they will open it up, read it, heed the exhortations that Paul has been giving them, and start seeing the fruit of this work in their lives. So when we jump to Timothy, what Paul is saying is, I'm going to send Timothy. He's going to come after Epaphroditus, but the goal is what? So that I may be cheered by news of you. The goal is this, is for Timothy to leave Rome, go to Philippi, see that the things that he has written to them are actually taking place. There's fruit being bore out in their lives. And then Timothy will see this, like, yes, man, the, the Philippians are are showing fruit of the gospel in their life and then come back from Philippi to Rome and turn, look to Paul and go, you have got to see what is going on in their lives. There's a reason, earthy reason, very concrete reason. Paul's like, listen, I want to know how it's going with you. Paul cares. He has friends. The whole time that we read this, we're going to see there's a very intimate glimpse into Paul's life when we're looking at these pieces of Scripture because Paul's going to say this. We, we often look to Paul and go, man, he's like super, he's the apostle Paul. But there's something just very early and very real about this exchange. Paul says, listen, I've got friends in another, another city and I want to know how they're doing. 
So I'm going to dispatch a friend to go find out and bring that information back. Paul has a deep affection, a deep longing for his friends, and he wants information on them. But not only is he sending Timothy for his sake, but he's also sending Timothy for their sake, for the sake of the Philippians. That's verse 23, 24. He repeats that phrase again. Therefore, I hope to send Timothy to you just as I, soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. See, Paul is in prison. And up to this point in Paul's letter to the Philippians, you keep seeing him bounce back and forth between this idea. Yeah, I'm in prison. I think I'm going to die, but I think I might live. I think I might live. I think I might die. And he's just sort of right on that edge, teetering there, going, I think God is doing this, but I don't have a concrete answer, a concrete inclination on what's going to happen there. And so when he's saying these things, somehow, we don't know how, but somehow the Philippian believers know the situation in Paul's life, what is going on there, how he's basically teetering there waiting for a an answer from caesar as to whether he will die or as to whether he will live and they want to know what's going on too and so he says i'm going to send timothy as soon as i see how it'll go with me in regard to the judgment whether i'll be free or whether i'll be killed as in regard to other pastoral things that are going on those people who are preaching from envy and rivalry and all of these other sorts of things that have been going on in paul's life paul says listen i know you want to know about it just relax. As soon as I find out, believe me, I will let you know. Don't think that in sending Timothy that somehow I'm going to shortchange you. I know you desire to see me just as equally I desire to see you. So rest assured, as soon as I am free, I think God's going to do this, I'll come and see you also. See, there's a reason for Timothy coming. And this reason for Timothy coming then becomes an avenue by which Paul says, but listen, let, let, me, let me press something else before you. I'm not just giving you this information just so you can know randomly about why I'm sending Timothy, but I'm giving you this information so that this becomes the vehicle, this becomes the avenue by which I can press before you yet another opportunity to look at what it looks like to be a Christ-like example, to be a citizen who behaves and conducts his manner, life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So parked right in the middle of Paul's reasoning for sending Timothy to the Philippians is Paul's commendation of Timothy. Of those available to the apostle in Rome, Timothy had proven his worth in concrete ways. And Paul could say, I have no one so like-minded as Timothy. These are verses 20, 21, and 22. I have no one like him. No one like-minded like me. There's Nobody who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How? As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And with these words in verses 20, 21, and 22, Paul sets forth Timothy as a Christ-like example in three ways. He says this, You will see Timothy, and as you see Timothy, you will realize this. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. He cares for you. He has outright concern for you. And I think what Paul is doing is going back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you want to see an example of someone who in humility counts others more significant than themselves? It's Timothy. He has a genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy also seeks the interest of Jesus Christ by seeking your interest. 
And I think he's reaching back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. And in doing this, he grabs that language out of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Timothy is doing this. He is marked as a man who says, I am so consumed by the interest of seeing Jesus Christ advance, it necessarily leads him to go, not me, not me at the center, not everything about me, but I am genuinely concerned for others. He's looking out away from himself. Thirdly, he points and shows that his like-mindedness with Paul is proven by his gospel service. You see that there in verse 22. You know Timothy's proven worth. How? As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. As a son is like-minded with his father, so Timothy is like-minded with Paul, especially in regard to the gospel. Paul says this, I'm concerned for your welfare. Timothy's concerned for your welfare. I'm seeking the interest of Christ. Timothy's seeking the interest of Christ. I want to see your interest be met above mine. Timothy wants to see your interest be met above mine. Paul is giving his life in full devotion to gospel service. Timothy comes along, and he is one who is giving his life in full devotion to gospel service. Paul says this, Paul, Timothy is a like-minded man like me. When you see him, receive him. He is a man worthy of honor. So then when you close out the chapter of this little snapshot, this little Polaroid, this little Instagram picture of Timothy in verses 19 through 24, Paul turns immediately and casts his gaze to Epaphroditus. And he's going to do the exact same thing. So having now commended Timothy to his friends, Paul focuses attention on this member of the Philippian church. See, what could have happened is this. Timothy could have showed up and some of, maybe there was people in the Philippian church like, okay, that's great. Yes, we're supposed to cast our gaze to Jesus. Yes, Timothy is good. Timothy was there with Paul in Acts 16 when this church was planted through the preaching of Paul. But there might have been someone said, like, listen, Timothy was here. Timothy was gone. Of course, Timothy images and imitates Paul as Paul and Timothy are imitating Jesus. Of course, Timothy's hanging around with Paul all the time. Of course, he's going to be commended as someone we should look at. But Paul says, listen. There's someone even in your own midst, someone whom you know, the very man you called out to go and be a minister to my needs. His name is Epaphroditus, and he is one who is worthy of imitating. He is a Christ-like example. So Paul does the same thing. Verse 25, 26, and 28, he gives Epaphroditus' reason for coming. Again, something, something very early, something very concrete denominational email sort of stuff. I have thought it necessary, the first part of 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Why? Verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. See, Paul thought it was necessary to send Epaphroditus back because Epaphroditus was longing and distressing for the Philippians. Somewhere along the way, 
Epaphroditus, either traveling from Philippi to Rome or upon getting to Rome, became sick. And somehow the letter doesn't tell us that this sickness that Epaphroditus had was news that traveled back to Philippi. And they were worried for their friend. This wasn't like they had, um, you know, some sort of quick stop, some sort of some easy um, quick care that Epaphroditus could have just floated into on his way traveling from Philippi, traveling down to Rome. In those days when you were sick, it was a big deal. And Paul even tells us that it was actually sickness and illness that was near to death. The Philippians knew Epaphroditus was sick, but Paul tells them it was sickness near to death. But in this, God had mercy and Epaphroditus did not die. And this spared Paul from having sorrow heaped upon sorrow. See, Paul was already in a sense of sorrow because of everything that we read back in Philippians chapter 1. There were people who were preaching the gospel, but they were preaching gospel out of self-interest, rivalry, self-love, conceit. And he says, well, praise God, the gospel's going forward, but we said this earlier when we touched on that piece of scripture. It's not like Paul is saying, listen, it doesn't give two rips on whatever your heart is when you're preaching the gospel as long as the gospel is preached. There was a sense of sorrow and going, man, because they're seeking to do this for one reason. It says back in Philippians chapter 1 that they were preaching in this way in order to afflict Paul. And Paul is receiving sorrow. He has a heart of sorrow for this. And so what he says here, this, when Epaphroditus showed up as a minister to my need, bringing the gifts that you sent with him in order that he may come and his companionship lift my heart and strengthen me in the work, seeing that he was sick, sickness near to death. If he would have died, it would have been heaping a mountain of sorrow in his death on top of the sorrow that I'm already experiencing because of my afflictions for the gospel inside my Roman prison cell. But God, out of mercy, spares Epaphroditus. And in light of this good gift, Paul saw it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to his friends. In verse 28, the Philippians are rejoicing and the lessening of Paul's sorrow. That is the reason why he's sending them back. He's like, listen, I'm eager to send him back to you. Therefore, that you may rejoice and see him and again. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the Philippians. They send out an emissary. They send out an ambassador saying, Paul, Epaphroditus, we can't go. Paul, our friend, the one whom we love, the, the apostle who showed up preaching us the gospel, we desire to be there in Rome with him, but the whole church just can't uproot and travel there, so we're going to send one, and he goes. But in his going, they receive news. He's sick. Something's not going well. There's a distress in their soul. So you can imagine the joy, just imagine just a friend you haven't seen in a while was sick, maybe sick and about to die, then all of a sudden he were just to come walking around the corner and walking down the aisle, you'd be like, yes, you would be excited, you would rejoice, yes, God spared him, God had mercy, praise be to God. So Paul is saying, I'm just sending him back because I want you guys to rejoice at seeing him again, but I'm also doing it so that I may be less anxious. How would Paul be less anxious? Simply as this, I mean, I think there was a realization that Paul could have used a friend, Epaphroditus. He could have said, man, God had mercy on you. Now you stay here. I don't give two rips about the Philippians. But no, Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, I'm going to send you back. It would, it would be a sorrow. It would be anxious to me. It would be creating an anxious heart with me if I, knowing the desire of the Philippian believers to see you again, Epaphroditus, were to look at my my friends, and go, no to you, yes to my needs. And here again, Paul becomes an example of seeking the interests and humility serving others. He says, I could use Epaphroditus, but I'm going to send him back 
because I don't want there to be an anxiousness, a sorrow in my soul. It doesn't kill all of his sorrow. There's still that problem he's dealing with with those preachers from Philippians chapter 1, but this is some sorrow that he can get off his plate, and as he does this, he longs for them to be people who are rejoicing in seeing Epaphroditus again. But just as he did with Timothy, he turns his mind's eye not merely to denominational email language, but he uses this as an opportunity to press before them, not somebody who hung out their whole life with Paul, but somebody who sort of grew up within their own ranks, Epaphroditus, the Philippian believer. Epaphroditus is a Christ-like example, and Paul says he's qualified as a Christ-like example in these ways. Last part of verse 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as his brother, as his fellow worker, as his fellow soldier. Brother is not merely a synonym for Christian, but speaks of Paul's close personal affection for him as a believer. Like, this is my brother. Like, he's laboring with me in the gospel. He nearly died for the gospel. This is not just merely like me. If you hang around me long enough, I basically call everybody bro or brother. And it's just my way of, like, saying hello. Like, that is not what's going on here. Paul is, it's, it's something that's birthing out of his heart where he's like, this is my bro- co-laborer, co-worker. And that's exactly the language he uses. He says, he's my fellow worker. Not only do I have a personal affection for him as a believer, but he is a fellow worker. It's a term that we find in the scriptures that's not used of every believer in general, but describes those who are co-workers in the gospel who have been commissioned by God with Paul in the task of missionary preaching. So he's pressing before them that there's, this, there's something different about this man. He is living out a lifestyle that is different. He's worthy of honor. He's a fellow worker. He's a brother. But not only that, he is a fellow soldier. And this term is specially reserved for these co-workers in the gospel who faced conflicts and opposition because of the gospel. So there's language here that Paul is using saying, listen, he nearly died for the work of Christ. Whether it was nearly a dying because of his illness or where it was nearly dying because of, as we've talked before, there is opposition, there is conflict, there is suffering going on there in Philippi. So maybe it was there in Philippi, maybe it was there while he was in Rome, but somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus was doing the work, risking his life to complete what was lacking in the Philippian service to Paul. And Paul says this, this is a man who nearly died for the work of Christ. He is a fellow gospel soldier. Another way that Epaphroditus is qualified as a Christ-like example is this. He's the Philippians' messenger and minister. He is like-minded with Paul. He longs for and yearns for his friends. That's verse Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all. This is language reminiscent again back when Paul was using the Philippians. Paul said this back in chapter 1, verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you. It's the same word, how I, how I long for you. Just that deep, gut-wrenching, heart-aching, like, man, I love you. I care for you. My heart hurts when I see you living in this way. It's that twisting of the soul and just like that almost painful hurt you have in your heart when you see and have a love and a desire for friends. And he says, just as I am thinking of you in this way, Epaphroditus is in the same way. He, too, Epaphroditus, is genuinely concerned for his friend's welfare. 
When you look in verse 26, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. We know this, that through this sickness and through the events with Epaphroditus in Rome, he was distressed. But he wasn't distressed and bummed out because he was sick. He had that deep, gut-wrenching, hurting heart, distressing because his friends were bummed out because they heard he was sick. His distressing of soul was because of their distressing of soul. And this is Epaphroditus thinking of others more highly than he thinks of himself, looking to the interests of others. He even is marked out as a man who risked his life and nearly died for the gospel. And Paul says accordingly that Epaphroditus is to be received with joy in the Lord, and they are to honor such men as this. This is a man that was bent on the gospel advancing and magnifying the name of Jesus. And Paul says this, don't just look over him because this is just some guy that you guys have always known. Look to him and honor such men as this. So when we look at 19 through 30, we see Timothy and Epaphroditus We see the reasons why Paul is sending one and reasons why Paul is sending the other. Paul uses those two things, those two reasons for each man as an avenue, as a vehicle to say, not only am I sending them to you for this reason, but you are to look at these things and then see the substance of the man. But you need to know this. Paul is not commending Timothy and Epaphroditus merely because of things that they are doing but he's commending Timothy and Epaphroditus because they are so consumed by Jesus. Listen, heavenly citizens, as they conduct their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, they in turn become Christ-like examples for others to imitate. Paul has just set before us two men who are worthy examples. We are meant to read about Timothy and Epaphroditus and their Christ-like example and in turn be spurred on toward conduct that is worthy of the gospel. See, Paul does a great service for us. He rests his emphatic exhortation, this thing that we've been looking at, verses chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 18. We've been calling that Paul's emphatic exhortation. He's been saying to them, live in humility. This will lead to unity. Stand firm in the gospel. Strive side by side. Be obedient. Obedience looks like working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling looks like doing all things without grumbling and complaining. We've called this this big emphatic exhortation. These are things that were not going well in the Philippian believer's life. Paul says, boom, shoves it forward. This is how you honor Jesus conducting your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. But I am arguing that Paul does a great service for us. He rests his emphatic exhortation, this big shoving forward of all these things, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is why the Christ hymn is buried right in the middle of that exhortation. Yet he also brings this massive, ready truth down to a level that we can grasp. Because oftentimes, I mean, because I'm just trying to think in my mind, like, why? Like, why didn't Paul just go, hey, Jesus did it, figure it out. Jesus was the supreme example of humility. That's all you need. Jesus was the supreme example of obedience to the Father. So just do what he did as Jesus, for goodness sake. Just follow what he's doing. Like, why does he not just leave it there? 
Why does he in turn say, Jesus, look to Jesus. Jesus is the example. And oh, by the way, here's Timothy who is doing what Jesus did. Here's Epaphroditus who's doing what Jesus did. And later, when Pastor Tom preaches in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul's going to come along and say the exact same thing. You can even look to me because I'm living in this way. Like, why did he have to feel the need to promote these other people as Christ-like examples. Why couldn't he just leave it as, hey, it's Jesus, do what Jesus did. And I think it's for this reason. It's based solely out of encouragement, hope. See, the command to look to Jesus, this reason why the Christ hymn is in the middle of Philippians chapter 2, the command to look to Jesus as our example might seem large and unattainable for some. I mean, I can distinctly remember a time in my life as an early believer. If someone were to come up to me and go, you're struggling with A, B, and C, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, I'd be like, man, what does that even look like? What? what? Like, how? When? Where? In what way? Saying what? Thinking what? Doing what? And my thinking in that way wasn't negating my need to look to Jesus, but for me, the way as God has wired me, and my assumption is the way God has wired most of you is this. As I am commanded, exhorted, encouraged to cast my gaze upon Jesus, it also becomes extremely helpful for me if I can do this. Turn my gaze and look at someone else and go, this guy is consumed with Jesus. And as he goes to work next to me, and images Jesus at work, I now have a concrete, graspable idea of, oh, so that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, to example Jesus, to be Christ-like. It's not that I just look here and do nothing with Jesus. It's I am looking at him as I'm looking to Jesus. He's looking to Jesus. And so there's just all this Jesus looking, but there's just this real concrete, graspable way to go. So this is what it means to do this at work, at the neighborhood, the backyard Bible club, with the barbecue that we throw for our friends at community group, with the random conversation with the neighbor walking down the street, the exchange you have with the clerk at High V. It's just all these sorts of things. How do you how do you do that? Well, it's a little bit easier to do it and go, well, man, that, I've seen how that guy does it. I know that guy's not seeking his own interest, but he's seeking the interest of Jesus. That's what it looks like to do that? Well, I, I can do that. And I believe it is for that reason that Paul points to Timothy and Epaphroditus as Christ-like examples. The encouragement to look to your fellow friend and follow their example as they imitate Jesus somehow becomes more easier to swallow. I can remember thinking this way when I was in getting geared up and getting ready for basic training. So I was in the military from 1999 to 2007. So I was coming right out of my high school Years, I remember thinking this. So this, this is not my military story. I remember my junior year, English literature class, an army recruiter comes and is giving his speech. You know, gung-ho, army, hua, let's, let's go, you know, take the world, that kind of thing. And I remember, I mean, this was my thought. I was like, I will never join the army. Like nearly a year later to the day there I was in my home with an army recruiter signing, signing a line, right? So then the next thing is, well, you're supposed to go to basic training, right? I think basic training is not easy, I would, I would argue, um, for any branch of the military. And so there was some like, man, you know, can I, can I do this? I mean, is, am, I, am, I, am I made of this stuff? But I remember there was an option in the Army, I'm, I'm assuming it's still around, to where they would allow you to enter in basically and do basic training the summer 
between your junior and senior year, do your senior year of high school, get out of high school, and then go and do your advanced individual training where you'd go and learn your job. And there was a couple of classmates who did this. And (laughs) this is sort of like a good example, but what I remember doing is going, okay, if this guy could do it, surely I could do it, right? Now, that was sort of a self-promoting, like, okay, I'm better than this guy, right? Like, I'm, I'm more equipped, more able to think. But in a sense, I looked at this guy and go, okay, this guy's example of doing basic training became an example for me. Like, if he can make it through his example, he survived, well, then I, I, I can do this. We see this played out in my house all, all the time. Like, Tara will say, hey, can you move this? Can you, can you lift this box? So I'll lift something heavy. And I'm trying to instill in my boys what it looks like to be workers. Men. Men work. They sweat. They do hard work. So what we do in our house is like we're always flexing our muscles, right? Very guy, guy sort of thing. So we, we lift something. And I'll, you know, Malachi, Johnny, Judah there. And I'm like, man, yeah, look at that. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like instant inflation, man. It's like, you know, yeah, dad can do it. I can do this. You know, sometimes, like, I'll be doing some work, I'll just be changing my shirt or doing something like that, and Malachi will come running in, and, like, he looks at me, and he's like, boom, he points to the shirt, and he pulls it up, like, if Daddy's doing this, I can do this. You know, it's, it's looking to the example of that father going, listen, if, if Dad can do this, I've got this laying licked, man, I can do this. And I think there is something in the way that God has wired us And being able to stand on this road of salvation, looking down the avenue of approach, going, I'm here. This is language you find in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim Progress. It's a big road that Christian, the pilgrim, is traveling toward the heavenly city, city of Mount Zion. And along the way, he keeps bumping into people who are just a little bit further down the road than him, a little bit further down the road to him. So I think that's the way God has wired us. Christian discipleship is to go, I'm 33, got four kids, eight, six, five, and two. I don't want to necessarily just look to other people who are just as clueless as me with four kids and are 33. I need your example because my assumption is you're following Jesus, and as you're following Jesus, I need to know what you're doing here. But brother needs some hope around here. I need to look down the road, and I want to see Tom who's walked with Jesus, who's promoted Jesus to his children, who has seen two kids go through homeschooling and graduate and send them out. It's like, I want to be there. And so what I do is I go, I see Jesus in my parenting. I see Jesus in the way I talk to my kids. I see Jesus in this, Jesus in this. But it also helps just to turn my gaze and to look at this brother and go, how did you do it? And that principle applies in everything, not just merely Parenting. See, our ultimate motivation is always Christ for everything. That's why the Christ hymn is buried in Philippians chapter 2. Notice what the opposite side of the coin is. Paul didn't just say, do these things. Jesus did it. Figure it out. He gives us Timothy and Epaphrodites as an example. Notice the back side of the coin, what he does not do. He does not say, do all these things. Who cares about Jesus? Just do what Timothy and Epaphroditus did. He doesn't do that either. It's the both and. It's the two sides of the coin. It's here's Jesus, follow him. Here's two people following Jesus. Now follow them as they follow Jesus because Jesus becomes your example and just becomes this big. Everyone's looking to Jesus and then we're all imitating these Christ-like examples. 
See, Jesus is always our ultimate motivation. Jesus is the supreme example in the end of everything we do. Yet there is something in the way God has wired us for us to be spurred on in our walk with Jesus as we see others doing well in their walk with Jesus. So when you combine the things that are worthy of commendation in Timothy and Epaphroditus, you come up with an incredible list. The things commended for Timothy and the things commended for Epaphroditus, they're genuinely concerned for others. They sought the interest of Jesus. They gave themselves to gospel service. They're known as a brother in Christ, a gospel worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, a minister, ultimately willing to risk their life and die for the gospel. And when Paul does these sorts of things and says, this is why they are worthy to be Christ-like examples, this list is not meant to be a Mount Everest where we look at it and we're like, good grief. I can't do this. This is unattainable. This is seemingly unachievable. No, he does this and says, because you're in Christ, it is possible to live this way. Because Jesus, who is the most perfect human that ever lived, lived this way, you can live this way. We're meant to be spurred on in our journey toward Christ-likeness. So I think this becomes very good news for us in this way, and I'm going to apply this in three specific ways, and it's going to be incredibly narrow, and then it's going to get very wide in these three ways. This, from what we see today, is a very good word for fathers, right, on Father's Day? Because you have to understand this, fathers, for those of us who are fathers in the room, Whether you are a father with children in the home, whether you are a father who is a grandfather. This exhortation is an incredibly good news for the father. We as fathers are called to be Christ-like examples to our wives and children. It's the principle we find in Ephesians chapter 5 in the husband-wife relationship. And I would argue just even in the daddy-family relationship, there is one person that God has orchestrated to be the one who images Jesus as the head of his home, as the head of his marriage, and it is the husband. When we hear the exhortations to strive after Christ's likeness, looking ultimately to Jesus, but then also looking to those who are doing these things well, this is a good word for fathers because I don't know, for those of us who are fathers in here, being a father isn't horribly easy. That's the whole reason why we did the second half of our child dedication this morning. It was this, like, we need your help. You are to come along and help them parent the same thing with being a father. This is what we do as a community of believers is as I'm doing this, you're speaking into me. And as you're doing it, I'm speaking into you. So this person comes speaking here and that person speaks into me. And it becomes this multifaceted web of people exhorting one another, honoring one another, encouraging one another, leading, being Christ-like examples. See, I don't want to put too much stock in this But it is partly true that you, when you live like Jesus, you are encouraging me. I need you to live like Jesus. Salvation isn't rested in this, but I am encouraged when you walk and talk and live and think like Jesus. I'm encouraged. I desire that for you, ultimately because there is joy in that vertical relationship. But the fruit of you and your vertical relationship with Jesus bleeds outward, and I reap the benefits of your fruit of walking with Jesus. I need that. I desire that. I want that. Moving from narrow to the next step is 
See, this isn't just a good word for fathers, but this is just a, a good word for men. Right? Because some of us in here are like, man, I'm like 13, you know? Like, I'm, I don't have a kid. Some of us are like, well, I'm not so much 13 anymore. A little bit further down life's trail. Maybe you never had children. Maybe you can look back on your life and go, man, I hear this, and like, this is the complete opposite of what like, I was like my whole life. But see, the good news is that the grace of Jesus Christ steps in, that this is a thing for the now. Men of all ages are called to be examples in all areas of life. So let's just create an, an example. Maybe you blew it as a father, but do you have grandchildren? Christ can redeem that. Did you grow up having a father that was just completely opposite of everything that we've been talking about this morning? Christ through you can redeem that. See, it's not just good word for fathers or a good word for men. It's also a good word for women. It's a good word for disciples of Jesus in general. This call to follow Jesus and be an example of Jesus to others is ultimately a call for any follower of Jesus. As a man, your only example may have come from your mother. As a woman, your only example of Jesus may have come from your father. You may have had an awful example of Christ-likeness in your father or your mother. Your only Christ-like example may have come from some other person in the church. It may have not have come from anybody in the church. It may have come from that neighbor. It may have come from that godly great-aunt, that godly great-uncle. It may have come from that great-grandpa that was down the road. But the point is this. Someone else further down the road than you was an example of Jesus, and you were fed and fueled by their example. So my question for you is this, and we'll, we'll end on this, is who are you imitating? Who are you seeking to follow their example? See, I, I, I heard myself thinking this, and I, and I typed this down like in this statement. It's like, you know, like I, I don't know much. I don't stand before you as someone who comes carrying like a load of just knowledge. I don't know much, but I do, I do know this. I was like trying to think, if I could just boil it down to these two simple principles, I think it would be this. I know that Jesus is king, I know that Jesus is creator. I know that Jesus is the ruler. He's sovereignly orchestrating all things for the magnification of his name. And I know this, that not only is Jesus a king, but I can look to this person and this person and recognize that in their life that this person is so consumed with Jesus that all he does reflects Jesus. So if I know Jesus is like this and Jesus thinks this way and Jesus calls this these things, when I'm looking at that vertical relationship, I know because that's true and Jesus is my plumb line, I can then look to the horizontal and go, I see this guy, this woman, this aunt, this uncle, this sister, this brother, this cousin, this neighbor, this other church member is living in this way. And so I know I want to live like them. I submit to you that you do something to get with this person. The question is, who are you imitating? Who are you exampling? Who are you surrounding yourselves with? I think the encouragement of our brother Paul would be this. You need to anchor yourselves around people who are walking and living and talking and thinking like Jesus. Not only, I'm not advocating a Christian bubble, but what I am saying is this. Who is the one you've given carte blanche to say, you have the right to speak into my life? Whoever this person is, because they are so consumed with Jesus, I submit to you that you do something to start getting with and meeting this person. 
walk with this person, learn from this person, so you, in the end, become the very example to another that is in your place now. See, most of us do this. We scan the horizon, and we say, I see a couple superstars floating around. I'm not one of them. And so until I get to their level, I'm going to do nothing. But the thing is, those people who are, quote, the superstars and you're looking to, you've got to know that there's somebody behind you looking to you. So what you don't do is just sit back and go, well, until I get there someday, then I'm going to start becoming a, quote, Christ-like example for others. No, it's people across the various stages of life and the various levels of Christian growth who are saying, I see where you're at, you're further down the road, I want to be like you because you're like Jesus. And someone comes along and goes, I see how you're a little bit further down the road, I want to be like you because you are like Jesus. This is the essence of Christian discipleship. This is why Paul says, man, it is worthy to honor these men because they consumed with Jesus. So maybe you're sitting there going, man, I don't, I don't know, where do I begin, man? I propose to you, you've got four other pastors besides me that are sitting out here. All men worthy of honor because they live Christ-like examples. This is what I love about our elder team and our pastor team. Let me honor these men here. See, what you don't have is a bunch of goobers like me that make up the elder team. Because if that was the case, a bunch of 33-year-old guys who are still on the tail end of seminary, it would go bad for us all very quickly. That's why I like, between these two men right up here, they've got more ministerial experience combined than I'm actually old. When you add up how much ministry experience they have done, it adds up to like more than me being 33. Like, I need that. And I want that. So what I can do is I can look down the line and go, man, I've seen how Tom... See, man, this is what I love about the pastoral team because everybody brings something unique to the team. Something where I look and go, I don't have, you have. Thank God you're around. I want to be more like you in this way. So I commend before you, Tom. Tom is phenomenal at discipleship. That is his, that's his bag. That's his thing. That's his deal. God has gifted him in that way. This is not a dig, but Tom is like one of the oldest guys in our congregation. And that's not a dig. Because what all of us need, us 25 to 35s who make up like 90% of Delta's demographic, we don't need a bunch of us looking just merely to us. We need people like Tom in our congregation. So I can look down the line and go, man, I see what he did there. I see how he loved his wife there. I see how he raised his kid there. How he spoke truth there. How he spoke a rebuke there. How he served there. And I, as 33, want to be where he's at when I get further down the road. This is a pastor that you guys have as an example. Charles has done the same. Charles is a connector. He's a network. Charles loves people. And it bleeds over into his area of pastoral watch care when it comes to missions and when it comes to worship. He does this well. His love for people and his scriptural knowledge ooze out in these ways. John Kleinschmidt is a whiz at small group, connectivity, loving on people, serving people. He's awesome in this way. And he brings something to the team. He, I set him before he's an example to follow him. He is a man. Of you. This is a Spurgeon quote. If you cover, he said this about John Bunyan. If you were to cut John Bunyan, he would bleed Bibline. He is so consumed with the Bible. That's what Spurgeon said about Bunyan. And not to say that Kleinschmidt is John Bunyan in ways, but that man is consumed with Scripture. Brian Hubert is a man that's been given a phenomenal mind. This is a man who knows his Bible. And if you go and talk to him, God has used him 
without him even knowing it, seeing how he leads and thinks through things, theology and doctrine. That is a gifting. I look at him and go, man, I see where he's at. I want to be like him. And not to raise the pastors up too high, but look to your community group leader. See, here's the, here's the thing about community group leaders and the pastors. None of this can be had when you do this with individualism as the mindset. We do this within the realm of community, right? That's why we do community groups. You can't be an example to others if you're rolling solo by yourself. You cannot learn and grow to become like someone else if you're rolling solo by yourself. Christian discipleship takes root in the soil of community. That's why we press the things that we press. Find a community group. Because in that community group, you realize, good grief, I don't have it all together. This guy's further down the road. I want to be like him. Some other guy comes along and goes, I want to be like him. And this little woman goes, I want to be like her. And then in community, that becomes the hotbed of growth, becoming more and more like Jesus. So then as that unit grows, then it spills outward and it spills outward. And that's why we press membership for one of a many number of reasons is because we say, welcome, come into our family. Be a part of the Delta family. We desire for you to be part of this church. Why? Join us, walk with us, talk with us, live life with us. Why? So that we can grow and become more like Jesus as a family. The last thing that you need to do if you are not a believer is to say, I want to be more like Jesus. I realize that I'm not a believer and then to somehow start modeling your life after Jesus. What you don't need to do is look to some other godly person and go, I see what they are and I want to be like them, but I have not a saving relationship with Christ. What you need is you need the gospel applied to your heart. The worst thing you can do is if you're an unbeliever in this room is to go, man, I don't really see a lot of Jesus in me. I I mean, most people are astute enough to go, okay, there's something different about that person. He probably is thinking, talking, acting like Jesus. I want to be more like him. When you make that leap of, I see no Jesus in me because Jesus really isn't in you, to, I see this person living like Jesus, and you jump straight from non-believer, not a Christian, have not been saved, to modeling what this Christ-like person is doing, you've skipped a key step there. That key step is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. See, the moment you do this and make that jump, modeling your life after a Christ-like, godly person when you are not a Christian, leads you down the path of self-righteous religion. That's just religion. That's just you in the, ultimately in the end just doing good things like this person in the hopes that God will just go, man, that guy was pretty sweet. He did some cool stuff. Sure, I'll let him on my team. And that's not where we want this to end up. You need the gospel to be applied to your heart. So let me finish with this exhortation here. Who are you imitating? Who are you following? Not because they themselves are worthy of just mere imitation, but because they are so consumed with Jesus. Cast your gaze to Christ. Cast your gaze to that fellow brother or sister. Walk in such a way, looking to be an example to others and learning of what it likes to be an example of Jesus from others. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. We ask that you would take these words and use them in such a manner that would bring you glory, bring you honor, bring you fame. God, we need you ultimately. And I pray my brothers and sisters would not hear me say opposite. 
but I also pray that as they seek Jesus with everything that they have, that they would in turn become a horizontal example to those around them. God, grow us in this way to where we become so winsome for Jesus in living our lives in this manner that the lost would come to know Christ and that we would be a shining light in the midst of a dark generation. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.